It's a storm center, huh? Yeah. yeah. Zero storms in this movie. Nobody was chasing tornadoes. I feel like there was like a false advertisement issue going on here. Where is Bill Sly Hoffman in a stupid hat, you know? I was going to ask about that. I was like, why is it called Storm Center? Like, is there a reference here that I'm missing? Because, like, it seems complete non sequitur to the actual plot. There was a storm of communist propaganda in America, actually. He (laughs) was at the center of it. (laughs) Yeah, that's all all I could figure was that it was just, like, a really shitty metaphor. Like, uh, I'll tell you, this movie just made me think of what Orson Welles said about Elia Kazan. Have you have you seen that clip? It's one of my favorite Orson Welles clip ever. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, he's asked about Elliot Kazan, and he says Elliot Kazan is a traitor who sold out <laughs> his comrades to McCarthy and made a movie called On the Waterfront about how cool it is to be an informer. However, he is a great <laughs> fil- he is a great film director, and I was like, yeah, <laughs> this was not directed by Elliot Kazan. That's that's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> this is quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah, I did a little poking about like the history of the movie because that's what I'm always interested in is like who made it and why because I don't really always have the skills to understand the film metaphors or what's happening in like the films talking to each other, but I can at least understand like oh, this guy was accused of being a communist like so I thought maybe someone involved had had this happen to them, but instead it's uh there's a real librarian that this is main character more or less is based off of. It's like, "Oh, cool." And I do love Betty Davis. So just made me want to watch like Now Voyager, which like mm great film if y'all haven't seen that voyager like or just whatever happened to baby jane that's like my two modes i'm either a now voyager gay or i'm a whatever happened to baby jane gay and there is like no in between (laughs) all right let's fucking go I'm Justin. I'm a Skullcom librarian. My pronouns are he and they. I'm Sadie. I work IT at a public library, and my pronouns are they, them. I'm Jay. I'm a music library director, and my pronouns are he, him. We have guests. Would you like to introduce Yay. yourselves? Boo! Uh, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> you chose this. You chose this. I'm Ash. I'm one of the co-ghosts of Horror Vanguard. Uh, pronouns they, them. Uh, and I am one of the other co-ghosts of Horror Vanguard. My name is John, and I use he, him pronouns. Spooky applause this time. <laughs> I've had that there since the last time you were on, so thank you for coming back. <laughs> oh, anytime. This is the most fun. <laughs> so we're going to talk about a spooky, scary movie. About communism. Oh, communism. <laughs> So we're going to be talking about 1956's Storm Center, a movie that was originally titled The Librarian, I believe. And we are still in the process. We're looking very strongly into how it got the name Storm Center. Best research team is on it. But it is a story about a small town New England library that has to deal with a little bit of a scare of some sort, a little bit of a frightening moment, a little bit of a spook. Maybe a specter. If you will, mm-hmm. <laughs> something is communism. haunting this <laughs> Weirdly, this is a film they don't make you watch in library school, but I think they should make you watch <laughs> this in library school over Party Girl and Desk Set. <laughs> Which, I mean, Party Girl and Desk Set are way better movies than this, but um, yeah, still. I assume this would be required viewing for everybody who works in every single level of the American library system. I'm, I'm somewhat surprised. What's, what's going on? I've never on? heard of it. Yeah. And I love Betty Davis and I had never heard of this. Yeah, no, they just make you watch Party Girl in grad school. That's a <laughs> it's a fun one. Yeah. Well, as I've always said before, I am not a, a great scholar of film, and so I want to open it up to our guests for their opening thoughts about, about this movie. Maybe set the tone for us. <laughs> well, Ash, I think it's over to you. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a pricey written for this if you want me to read it. I knew it! Absolutely. I knew it! Surprise! Surprise! <laughs> That's what I, got, I was I got, I got caught out once. 
called out once on on uh, <laughs> left page slash here be media for not having a pricey. Wrote it during the show <laughs> and have since never not had one out of fear of not having one. So I, I didn't want to be presumptuous and rude to our guests, <laughs> so I was I was poking for. Does Ash have a pricey? Mm. Please feel free. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and I thought a bunch of crazy nonsense with this one too. There are few game systems that contend with the library as a site of struggle and metamorphosis better than Call of Cthulhu. In COC, your character regularly finds themselves visiting local libraries, special collections, and forbidden archives to better understand the world around them. Your place in a Lovecraftian world is never certain and constantly renegotiated as you attempt with strained success to correlate the contents of your existence. It's a shame that HPL died when he did. Even with his evolving socialist politics set aside, the style of historicized fear that he excelled at writing defined America during the Cold War. Senator McCarthy is a poor man's copy of a Waitley or an Armitage. The idea of a book so compelling, so challenging that it drives one instantly insane is not just Lovecraftian, but the corner conceit of Storm Center. The Communist Dream, the film's tired masking of Marx's Communist Manifesto, is reportedly so dangerous that the community would rather watch a child become a crazed arsonist than contend with its contents. In no way then do we find difference between the Communist Dream and the Necronomicon. The terror for the fearful uninitiated, a tool for those already familiar with the arts therein. Alicia Hall herself is the perfect vehicle for an aged sage of the best weird fiction traditions. She embodies the types of alterity that make her kith and kin to elder things and deep ones. Hull is a being in a slightly ambiguous gendered position. A cis woman, certainly, but also one thrust into the political arena of her gendered overclass. Hull contends with the hyper-objects of the real in ways that would make the great base of Yith proud. Storm Center's liberalism has it constantly running out of steam. The communist dream must be kept in libraries for uncertain reasons no more specific and no more vague than a nationalist sense of moral fortitude. It's Wilbur Waitley and Dean Armitage locked in combat over the coming age of Yogg-Sothoth. Neither see beyond their small spheres of influence, no deeper in time than perhaps a quarter of a quarter of a life. Hull and the City Fathers likewise battle over something less concrete than the coming of a great old one. There is a third contender, dear listener, in this cryptic conflict. It is you, I, the viewer. We could side with Hull for a sense of academic freedom, the City Council over wartime concerns. But both of these leave us stuck with the peace and safety of a new dark age. It is within us to transcend Yogg-Sothoth, to build something that can last longer than the Yithians, to extend and abstract the library as a site of struggle, concept, and social framework throughout our lives. A writer gave birth to cosmic horror, a writer gave birth to communism, and a writer hemmed them both in with patriotic prose, all contenders in the eerie archive arena of your local library. Join us as we check out Storm Center. Ah, yes. Pun. I was so excited to see how non-librarians would react to this film's like bullshit <laughs> neutrality intellectual freedom arguments. Cause like I read the Wikipedia for this and it was like, ooh, this is like anti-McCarthy and about like a book about mm -hmm. communism and defending it in the library. Okay. And then I watched it and I was like oh okay <laughs> and i was so caught up in that that i was so curious as to like what non-librarians would, would think of us that was beautiful ash thank you oh i thank you yeah i also read the wiki before watching i had never heard of this one either until um y'all suggested it i read the wiki and i was like really hyped i read a bunch of reviews period and later reviews and it was like anti-mccarthyist brave film stands up to and then i watch it and i'm like Oh, this there's some like great creepy shots, but this is like the most like liberal both they literally both sides mind Kampf in this movie. The, yeah, yeah. It literally opens on a shot of John Stuart Mills on Liberty. That, that's the uh, when the credits roll, that's the text that's being displayed. So it's mm -hmm. like the, oh, welcome to the antinomies of American liberalism as it is completely unable to deal with ideology or politics properly. Politics will literally turn children into arsonists. That's what that's what politics does to you. <laughs> and like, sadly, even now, still in our like our current, and this is something we talk about on Library Punk all the time. That like so much of um, discourse around like book banning and intellectual freedom still in libraries now is this sort of tired, hollow, liberal. But we have to have all of the ideas, right? It's more about the principle of the thing than actual ideology of why you might want to have a book in a library. My 
why you might not want to have a book in a library, both ideologically and just like, you can't have every book in a library. There's literally not enough physical space. And it might not make sense for your community to have a, a, a book in a library, right? So it's like when it's more about the principle of the thing than actually caring about what books are in or not in your collection. I was like, okay, this is, we haven't changed at all in 50, 60 years. <laughs> yeah. The way we've always formulated it is it's not that you put a book there because it's good or bad or that the the community has the fortitude to withstand bad ideas. It's usually something like queer people are cool. People need to learn about it. Whether or not there's represented queer people in our community, you need to learn about them. There is there is sort of a coercion in particularly public school. You are coerced. You are forced to learn about things you don't want to learn about. And the public library also has a semi-coercive nature of we are going to put things here that will challenge you. And there's a reason for that. And it's because it is for ultimately our good. So we believe in that. The underlying ideology behind that might be kind of wishy-washy, but I think you can move beyond liberalism and say, like, look, there's a reason we have to learn about other people. And that's sort of like an anarchist dream of, like, we need this radical interdependence to be able to run without hierarchy. So I think it's totally consistent. I also didn't see this as an anti-McCarthy film at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, This film felt more like the only problem with McCarthyism is that it gets, quote, innocent people. Mm-hmm. You know, if it got just the communists and stuff, that would be fine. Like that's like with her, like, oh, she was in those organizations that turned out to be communist front fronts. Well, but we didn't ask when or why she joined them or when or why she like left. And if we just knew that, then, oh, she's innocent. She's being bes- besmirched. She can't be actually a communist, right? She has to be innocent. Mm-hmm. And there's a very liberal sense of like this, this, this totally like Apollonian political landscape. Like the organizations she she was a part of that were known communist fronts were like the the People's Association for Community Smiles or something like they're just these like <laughs> anhedonic things. And in the end, when all the books burn in the library, and it's this it's this very like it's an effective like horror sequence of seeing all like the the zoom ins on the titles and the spines through the flames. But it's the most like the it was it's the books that I would draw if I was making a children's cartoon in the back of background of the library just so they know it's a library. It's like. <laughs> Shakespeare, like the one of the books was like something like medicine for people or something. It was like a bunch of fake book titles. <laughs> the mind of man, Dickens. Yes, when yes. you said religion, <laughs> yeah, religion. Yeah. Won't somebody think of the folio edition of the works of Voltaire? <laughs> oh, n- not not my Dostoevsky. No. <laughs> My Barnes and Noble Moby Dick is going to be destroyed by McCarthyism. This sucks. <laughs> I do like those Barnes and Noble editions. I had one of Hamlet. They're it was very so nice, pretty. actually. I'm so conflicted over those because they're so pretty, but it's like, <laughs> I don't want to own the Barnes and Noble edition because I'm petty. So mm-hmm. it's it's the great war Good inside reason. of so many queer people. Pretty versus petty. Which one, which one do I let win? Yeah. I did have kind of like a question for the group if we wanted to kick this around. So to, to the best of my knowledge, the, the Communist Dream is not a real book. I, I tried finding Yet. it. I could not find any book with that title. So what do we what do we make of them being too big of cowards to actually put the manifesto in the film? My thoughts is that if they actually put real politics, they don't talk about any about what communism stands for or what might be in the communist dream. It's just the word communist, like communism, and that's scary. If you were to actually put the Communist Manifesto or some other like communist real text in there that had actual real politics in it, you couldn't just use it as like a, a spooky boogeyman thing that is kind of devoid of politics. Like it's mm-hmm. it would have to be a real object that people would have to talk about and not just some sort of way to talk about, oh, well, we have to have ideas we don't agree with in the library, mm-hmm. right? I, I put the communist dream in a world cat and I set the limiter to 1956 and it just immediately took me to the page for Storm Center. So I do not think this book exists. <laughs> Perfect. I think it's a level of abstraction. Yeah. They were afraid to, to if you, they were, I think they were a little bit of a contempt for the audience where they thought this was in contemporary reviews too. They're like, yeah, it's a little uh, preachy, whatever. But they thought maybe if you saw the manifesto, you would just lose your mind and it stopped paying attention, which is actually fair. That's called a worldview defense. If you, if you have a, something that challenges your worldview, you do shut off. So 
It's a it's a rhetorical technique. I think it makes sense if you're trying to make a point. And there's a wider kind of representational problem here, right? Which is that you can't, it, within the ideological framework of any mainstream American culture, you can't represent communism as an actually existing thing, right? You can't do that, right? This is it's 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 why you this is a horror movie. This is a horror movie, and it's about the spec. It's literally about the ghost of, of communism that is haunting the imagination of small town America, right? Uh, like I I just was thinking of Brecht's famous poem in praise of um in praise of communism what mm-hmm. Brecht, Brecht's, you know it's it's a very simple poem and it's like no it communism is very simple you can grasp it because you you're not an exploiter it is the simple thing which is hard to do and it's like so necessarily you can't have it kind of concretized it has to remain sort of spectral because ghosts are easier to manipulate and something i find interesting is that like as critical as we all are of the sort of like liberal intellectual freedom defense that's in this film at least that defense is taking all readers, including children, seriously mm-hmm. and their ability to comprehend things that they might not agree with. Like it, like this film still assumes that someone reading the communist dream wouldn't automatically make them a communist, sadly. Right. Like it's still like, well, people can read this and know what's in it and be fine. Even a child, like it weirdly is also making that argument. So I don't know then why it doesn't take its actual real audience as seriously as it does the fictional audience that's of like of readers in the film well you did mention before we started that the Hayes code was still in effect um, that's also true <laughs> to what extent do you think that might have impacted it I mean, the Hayes Code was also sort of getting onto its like last legs, right? Like famously sort of like some like it hot was sort of the last the last nail in the coffin of the Hayes Code because it was just like, we don't know what to do with this, right? So like it's it's nearing the end, but like the fact that it can even talk about communism and even paint it like, obviously I would not call this a pro-communist text uh, at all, but it still defends the right for a library to have a communist text in it and for people to read said communist text um, which I think is still saying something for a Hollywood film at the time during McCarthyism. Um, so part of me just thinks like some things that would get around the Hayes Code were because the censors didn't know what was going on because they were all stupid. <laughs> so maybe they just like didn't know what was going on or the fact that it like wasn't real communism or the fact that it paid lip service to like communism being bad, that that was fine or something. Because it gets kind of very patriotic about, well, this is what democracy means and this is what being an American is, yada, yada, yada. Communists wouldn't allow you to have the communist stream in the library, but we do, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's very, it's very blue tick liberalism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like, which is, I, th- I think the, the criticism of the time was that, like, it's, it's very preachy. It's a preachy, very heavy handed and didactic movie of like, it isn't, uh, small town 1950s republicanism good and you go but what's interesting I think watching it now from the left is that you have to go actually there are some things here which are useful from a left point of view the principle of actual of equity of access uh, is extremely important and was a big reason why the real life libra- librarian that this is based on was fired was her providing access to the library for, for black Americans in I think she's in mm-hmm. Oklahoma right mm-hmm like so, uh, so there are useful things there, and there are ways in which you can kind of see like leftist politics is not necessarily just the not just the kind of overcoming of the quote unquote liberal humanist project, but is in fact its completion and actual proper universalizing. Right. So you go under mm-hmm. under under communism, would there still be libraries? And you go, yeah, of course there would, but they would actually be libraries that everybody could access, and everybody would have the time and resources to access in whatever way that they needed to. So I I don't know I think it's I think it's it is a kind of it's a weirdly preachy movie and I think the but I'm like for a first go of an anti McCarthy mainstream Hollywood film boy it could have been a lot worse. <laughs> it honestly kind of reminded me of this propaganda film from 1951 called Face to Face with Communism. I don't know if you've seen it. It's only 30 minutes long, but it's it's very funny <laughs> like propaganda film. Basically, what happens is, you know how in Canada they would have those invasion days where, like, the Nazis would invade and the town was taken over by the Nazis? Well, basically, this guy, like, wakes up or he's, like, comes into town or something and he wakes up and, like, the communists have taken over and he's, like, going through his days bewildered and uh, he eventually, like, gets 
tried uh, in a court in a like a like a Soviet court for crimes against the people, and then he wakes up the next day, and then it's like everything's back to normal, and he's like, oh, everyone's like, oh wow, that was really a that was really a great performance you put on yesterday. Uh, I you did. I guess they teach you all sorts of things in the army. That's right. He's an army <laughs> guy who is who's going through town, and uh, it was very strange, very surreal, very funny. I re- highly recommend it. But this was sort of like a. Uh, it, it reminded me of it because it was very much like, what if this town just started losing their minds about a book called The Communist Dream? And everyone is sort of slowly turning on each other, turning on the little boy, turning on the librarian. As the movie sort of reaches further towards the end, it just kind of turns into a horror movie. And it's very strange why it's, uh, I don't know, I just pulled a lot of, of comparisons for me as if, like, were they drawing from that artistically or was it just a coincidence yeah weirdly what the end reminded me of was um gone with the wind Mm -hmm. actually you know i'll never go hungry again and like (laughs) you know atlanta burning behind her and everything and like especially since this was inspired by a real librarian who what she was actually fired for was like desegregation Mm -hmm. stuff i don't think there's a single person of color in this film right this is a very white uh film and so it's like this like legacy of desegregation and the civil and like civil rights and like race in america and like how our institutions are structured around race is as haunting of this film as like an absence and then that like shot at the end of like the library burning and her being like over my dead body or something. I was like, okay, Catherine O'Hara, like, <laughs> like it, it was just very, very that kind of like American spirit, Atlanta burning behind her thing, ignoring any, you know, like we just care about the white women now, like we don't care about anybody else. So like that's, which I mean, Gone with the Wind is also a horror movie, but um <laughs> Yeah, le- like just like legacies of the absence of discussing um, racial politics is very absent present in this film. My metaphor is getting away with me, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, totally. No, I, I, can, I completely dig it. I think that's that's very apt to to latch onto like the fact that this was. I think it's like Ruth Brown was her name, the librarian. That this yeah. is like loosely based on the life of like being fired for like doing civil rights activities like years before the civil rights movement proper would be kicking off and like to have that be completely absent from the film i think reflects the film's broader political discourses because at, at just about like every turn like i think there's a for the most of this movie while i was watching i was like oh they're doing something cool with alicia hall's character right you know like this is before women could have bank accounts and here she is like the leader of this library she's got her own home she's like going toe-to-toe with the city fathers over some planning issues i was like it's a little basic but we're doing some cool feminism stuff and then at the end of the movie like it's like oh no all of her goodness all of her virtue it's it's because of her her dead husband who was so patriotic that even his patriotic friends were kind of freaked out by it and so it's like oh no no she still she still needs that she still needs to carry the 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 dead weight of ghost husband around forever yeah i think in my notes near the end i literally wrote lee edelman has entered the chat (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think i was like she's a war widow you idiots like (laughs) yeah it's like that retroactive how do you how do you justify the Cold War? Well, we go back to the Second World War. How do mm-hmm. we justify that? Well, we go back to the first one, and like, there's always this kind of retroactive because really, the, what, like that 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 whole point is not just about legitimating her, but it's about legitimating like the quote unquote goodness of America, right? Don't you know we went through we fought a war against them, and it's like, oh, okay, so we're gonna that's 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 our sort of retroactive historicity, where in fact it goes you what you all always ground these liberal principles on an act of violence and death at the end of the day, right? Mm -hmm. But he was so patriotic. That's why he went off to be murdered by another state. It's, it's, it's good, you guys. We were married for two minutes and then he died a hero. (laughs) I mean, you joke, but that is sort of like the Whiggish view of American history you're Mm -hmm. taught in, Mm -hmm. in school is uh, a series of wars and great patriots. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, this is this could be a propaganda film. I think that's probably why it, it reads like one. It's like this could be a propaganda film shown to children. It's just one that's a little more liberal in its outlook. 
What do we make of the way that this film frames the the threat of this communist text and like everything, like the book bannings, like everything? Like, how do we view this film's, I guess, like portrayal of like the child with a capital C, right? Because I have opinions uh, because I was like, this could have been made today um, mm-hmm. with a lot of the things they were saying yep. about Alicia Hall, the librarian, and like mm-hmm. the way that she was interacting with a child who I would argue is a very queer coded child. I think both Sadie and I in our notes independently were like, is he, you know, <laughs> like, yep. oh, this is a tiny gay child because <laughs> he, he doesn't like the sports, the you know? Oh, God. Oh, yeah. And he hangs out with librarians. Like, yeah, no, it's like, I've been there. Mm-hmm. But little Freddie Slater doesn't play baseball like the other boys. No, 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 no. <laughs> so, yeah, like, what do we make of, like, this, like, the way this film, like, frames the child, capital C? I actually thought that this was, like, I have no way I could ever prove this, but I was sneaking suspicion that this is totally unintentional. But, like, so the, the first time we meet the, the Slater family, we've got uh, the, the, the absolute loveless, despotic marriage between Laura Slater and George Slater. And then we've got little Freddie, our, our little, our chipper little lad. And the, the first thing that we see is Laura is going to take a train to go see her mom alone without the rest of the family. And this has dad very upset. And I'm, I'm just like, 100%, babe, go see mommy. Get the fuck out of there. Get out of that house. And as the long rest as there's the- beer in the fridge and books in the library, we'll be good. <laughs> I had, yeah. I had that line highlighted. <laughs> My favorite quote in the film is you can always get another father, but a good book is hard to find. Yeah. <laughs> That's another one that I <laughs> But but the movie the movie like G- George is this like unredeemable villain. Like he doesn't even have that like yeah. spark spark of complexity that we see in like yeah, you know, like the Rochesters of the world, like your classic gothic patriarch villain types. He's just like a horrible dad, a horrible husband, a horrible member of his community. He's like this like bitter, biting little dude. And I, I found that like really effective that it's not like Fre- Freddie's corruption is not being centered on this librarian and her, regardless of what your politics are, her choices of what books to stock in the library. But it's like 100% on this dude being a terrible dad. See, I wonder, you said that might not be intentional. I wonder mm-hmm. if he was not meant to be a little sympathetic to the mm-hmm. all the 50s dads out there oh, to be totally. like, yeah, yeah. yeah, I tell my kid to fucking stop being a queer. Like, it <laughs> did him no harm. Yeah, you but yeah, see. you might be right. He did, That librarian does know some stuff. You know, that could be good. <laughs> Maybe the contempt of the movie is coming through again. <laughs> But there's that Absolutely scene. There's true. that scene where, where like you know, our, our poor, poor little boy has a nightmare, uh, full of its, full of its, you know, again, very queer coded. All of the phallic imagery mm-hmm. of snakes, snakes, <laughs> snakes, oh, and yeah. fire. Like it's, it's Freud one hundred and one. And actually, there is, there is the, 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 what makes it even worse is there's the moment afterwards of a kind of like actual positive male interaction where his dad's like, hey, let's go for a walk. I'll buy you a soda. Oh, by the way, the mm-hmm. communists want to get inside of your head and burn everything <laughs> to the ground. And it's yes. like, it's that it's, shot. Oh my that God. shot of like the industrial machinery. Cause it's right. like, you know, what, what, what was, what was the, uh, the socialist Soviet republics to America? It was communization plus industrialization, right? That was the whole thing. Mm-hmm. That was the whole drive of the USSR was towards in- industry. And so it, it is, it's political horror. It's, and it's like, it's designed to basically melt this poor child's mind into, into ideological soup. <laughs> Like the tr- the great tragedy that that's the great tragedy of the entire film is Betty Davis being yelled at that she's a communist in public until she slaps this child in the face, which is like that's that's like that's like the all is lost moment. The thing that got me was after that scene when there it's it's George and what was Alora and like mm-hmm. he's like. Where did we go wrong? How did we end up with a boy like this? And it's like truly. <laughs> Like, <laughs> respectfully respectfully uh, i also yeah. the the one good redeeming moment for the dad is when he takes the advice of the librarian she was the one who said why don't you mm-hmm. take him for a walk and buy him a soda do you know if he likes soda and that, so that's where i thought like oh he's like coming around i thought mm-hmm. this was his turn but then the horrific scene happens with the we got one of those down at the plant you never know i don't <laughs> really understand what was going on in this scene really except that the child is like losing his last shreds of sanity 
Um, well, Dad, Dad has just finished binging all of Ben Shapiro's YouTube videos, and now he is inciting stochastic terrorism in a young man. Like, this this movie reads too well for 2023. And that young man grew up to be Dennis Prager. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, really, like, they're, they're, they basically go, they do everything but call Alicia Hull a groomer mm-hmm. in, in this. Yeah. And it's like, they don't say anything about, like, in, like, the sexual context that, like, it's being used now, but, like, there's not a difference between like grooming your child, grooming a child to be a communist and whatever, like, like those are the same thing oh, yeah. in the minds. Like, even if you say, oh, we're not doing the sex thing that you are accusing us of, but just our existence as queers, as communists and everything that in and of itself is grooming according to like the far right or just even liberals, right? Like that in and of itself. So it's like they, they basically, this is like a, a narrative of a librarian being called a groomer mm-hmm. and they're trying to be like, no, I swear to God, I'm not a communist. I'm just trying to be a good librarian librarian and like that's already conceding the argument mm-hmm. right like we say this all the time we have to stop being so defensive <laughs> in how we respond to book challenges and being called groomers and all this stuff like we have to say like no like we have to be affirmative and um, proactive in how we are framing uh, the ideology of our collection development and of our identities that we bring into being librarians because they're gonna call you this anyway right this, isn't this isn't this the, something and, she, yeah. she learns in the course of the film or it's like you know i found out they were a communist organization so i resigned because i'm actually a good american like left liberal but it's like no they're gonna call you a communist anyway so so like what does it matter if you go no please i've i've done everything that you already wanted me to do you i mean you're quite right that 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 same thing is gonna happen yeah there's a lot of gender happening in this film i actually started (laughs) making a note there's some gender and some pronouns happening but i had a, a thought which was I think the reason we have like this dysfunctional family, like the the dad is a piece of shit. The mom is doing her best. She like loves to play the piano and he's like, stop banging that piano. And I think he does say piano because I wrote up my notes that way. I think one of the threats, I don't know if the movie did a good job of not making this look like a threat was the undermining of the patriarch by the public services. So like by women in these public service roles, Saying, hey, your kid's fine. Hey, little kid, go read what you want to read. Being a surrogate parent in the community and sort of that makes the family kind of lose its hope in the child. And the child, once he's turned against that positive role model, sort of goes off the deep end. But it's very interesting because I don't know if they tied that up very well, if they wrapped that up, because there's two kind of gender storylines happening. I think one is the family and then the other is the young anti-communist who's trying to unseat the establishment politician mm-hmm. and who and who is dating a live he is dating a librarian the up-and-comer so that's why i think ben shapiro will come back in to the, this <laughs> once we get to that storyline i think I, he's much more of a current right-wing kind of guy and i think that was a really good choice by the movie to make the political nature of the challenge that like this was just some fuckhead trying to get one over on the establishment guy who's really nice and everyone likes him and he's put in his years of public service. And yeah, he used his girlfriend saying, oh, we didn't throw that book away as a, as an ability to go burnish his anti-communist credentials. And the film explicitly says that. I thought, well, oh, that's pretty interesting, actually. And she leaves him over it. That was and I was sick. like, good. I was like, good for her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then she went to go work with the desk set librarians. Right? There you go. <laughs> He looked like Colin Firth, and it bothered me the entire movie. <laughs> he did. I was just like, I cannot unsee this. <laughs> yeah, I was really worried at the end that they would get back together. Paul, Paul Duncan, our, our evil politician, and other other librarian. God, I'm forgetting her name. It's like Martha or something. Margaret. Martha, um, I think. Like I was so worried that they were like they're having like this fireside, literal fireside chat as the library burns down, and he's like, "Oh, whoopsie doodle, I guess politics is a little strange." And she's just like, "What the fuck are you saying?" <laughs> and just dumps him flat right there. That was just it mirrors Alicia's like life story really well because she also loses her husband, husband to be early on in her life, and now Martha's doing the same thing. But it's kind of like a more positive, agential twist on Alicia's biography. So it is It is a cool little, there's some spice in this film that kind of makes it more interesting than a, I don't know, center-right, anti-McCarthyist, anti-communist film would be, question mark. Yeah, I always like these little sort of things, because this, this is two years before Desk Set. Oh, wait, only two years? Yeah. What? The... 
the original star for this movie, I think, dropped out because they thought it was going to be in Technicolor. Mm-hmm. So it makes the film look older than it is. But yeah, there's there's in in that movie as well. There is some strange like there's there's a there's a strong sort of feminist base there. Yes, we're showing women in these traditional pre-war roles. We're kind of like trying to push them back away from the manufacturing roles and stuff. But they're still there in positions of authority. But in this movie, it's just not as well articulated of like everyone is sort of kind of just pities the, the librarian character and doesn't really take her seriously from the very mm-hmm. beginning. She shows up. She's so excited for the children's wing. She's got all her documents. She takes it to the pub where they're having the city council meeting. She took the and, library buildings course in grad school. <laughs> like she's ready to go. <laughs> and everyone's like, calm your, calm your tits, eat some lobster bisque or whatever it is we're eating up here. It was, it was like, there's some throwaway joke too about her weight. I feel like it was like mm-hmm. she, she two whole things, a lobster bisque. And I was like, was that necessary? Uh, well, it, bad guys can say bad things, I guess. <laughs> They're allowed to be villains. But that was just a really strange line that I was like, did I mishear that? But anyway, she, the whole movie, she's sort of a pitiable character. She's not really, she's shown to be a very kind person. Mm-hmm. Also sort of saintly suffering more than a agent of herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I got really upset when it, because it was like, Despite them not taking her seriously, like despite like the the city council not taking her seriously, I felt like the movie was taking her seriously at, at first and like showing her principled and being in the right and everything like and showing clearly that we should be on her side. At least that's how I was reading it until like it just reduces her down to this like I'm going to go to California and eat nut burgers and I'm going to cry about the children TM and like just that's all that she's reduced down to is this like pitiable like woman without a purpose who doesn't even have children and the her surrogate children are now taken away from her like it just like this whole film it's like at first it was like a film about like childhood liberal like a child's right to read what they want to read and taking their ability to do that seriously because like this kid could read whatever he wanted and like she was even let him take home like a rare book knowing it might get damaged and it did but like she let him do that she took his desire to read like seriously and i was like yeah like this is things we've talked about on here like with like the the guys from seriously wrong right of like child autonomy and like Mm -hmm. children's rights right and i was like oh okay good job movie cool 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 and then it just it takes that kernel of like something good and just turns it into her being like hysterical and and childless and and i was like really movie like it totally removed any of her principles Mm -hmm. or anything until her little uh not Catherine o'hara scarlett o'hara god a Scarlett O'Hara little speech there at the end as the library burned, right? Yeah, isn't it? What is it that one of them, the the judge says, she should have had 20 children. Oh, but yep. yep. It's yep. like, oh, okay. So once again, we're back in the realm of like reproductive labor, right? Of, of, of. Like, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the point that you made, Jay, is like the, the capital C child being not just reproductive uh, labor, but also ideological and political reproduction. Right, how mm-hmm. do you, and it's like, how do you? What? What is it that the child is this, this element of the future, and the future is open to contestation? Which again brings it back to the point that you were making about Lee Edelman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was very strange where they were in that scene, and there's the young woman who's like on her side because she grew up in the library, and then the judge goes, "She was so smoking hot, like even smoking <laughs> hotter than you, young woman." Mm-hmm. And then he starts singing this, and I was really confused. <laughs> I hate you so much. <laughs> was the best part of the movie when that song came on too? Yeah, what you should have done was really got good. the clip of the little library theme song that they sing. Like, why don't libraries have theme songs? Oh anymore? yeah, they they did the fourteen words little pageant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we must protect our library, other <laughs> folk. <laughs> oh dear this is a thing they did in the 50s like it was a legitimate like that was actually really thanks for bringing that up because that was really a genuinely like major thing that like uh i think like it was part of nixon's campaign too was putting like white women on stage and white mm-hmm. dresses and white gowns and saying like look at this purity that we have so yeah, that's a that was a good that was really interesting that they put that in there in 1956. But I mean, we've already mentioned that the that Ruth Brown, the real librarian, was was pushed out for being a member of pro civil rights 
organizations. And it would have been really interesting if they had somehow moved that into the movie in some mm-hmm. way. Where, like, you know, the new up-and-coming guy was a segregationist, and mm-hmm. the, the guy in power, the judge in power, was not, because he was older and more more conservative or whatever, more principled. That would have been an interesting angle to throw in to show, like, look, this is all about something else. But instead, they were just like, oh, it's about, it is about something else, but it's just about political rat-fucking. That's really the the major danger here, is that conservatives love to rat fuck each other and isn't that awful and it's like that okay everyone's solutions and everyone's ideology is so individualized in this movie where it's like if only we just had good people then we wouldn't have this yeah. runoff problem that's actually so uh when i watched this i watched this with um leon from here be media and something he like said was like this i wrote it down in my notes but that like this whole movie could just be summed up as individual approach over community approach even towards like the concept of a book ban right like and this is actually something we talked about with emily knox uh who is a scholar of book challenges when we had her on that was last year yes where it was like i brought up the point that like you know anytime we talk about like book challenges or like a collection development it's like it's always so like this single book and what it does rather than like its place in a community and everything and so it's like as long as you alienate everything and make everything an individual thing instead of its role in a larger ecosystem and how everything works together then it's like oh then i guess communism can't happen then Yeah, there's no there's no collectivity, right? You can't have I, you know you know what I was thinking of watching this is like there are no actual communists here because they mm-hmm. would actually have there's a, there's an incredible story in the book Hammer and Ho yeah by Robin Kelly and Robin Kelly tells the story of going to visit Alabama sharecroppers in like the the 1920s and how the clan used to try and like run black farmers off their land and he asks one guy you know how did you stop them and the old guy just pulls out the drawer and his side table and pulls out a box of 12 gauge shotgun shells and a copy of Lenin because that's how <laughs> but a box of shotguns based. and w- Lenin's what is to be done and it's like yeah that's 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 what an act in the context of of like mid 20th century racialized American capitalism that's what that's what the actually existing communism of the of the of the time was and it's like i think this point about individualization is really important because you see kind of like contemporary traces in it in like capitalist realism and responsabilization right Mm -hmm. oh if only librarians were making better choices like there's a there's a joke there's a joke in futurama which made which i was made to think of watching this movie (laughs) Which is from the episode uh, Bender should not be allowed on TV. We're right at the end after Bender's had a, like a super offensive run on a sitcom. Because parents, have you ever thought about turning off the TV, sitting down with your children, and hitting them? <laughs> <laughs> Most, perhaps all, the blame rests with the parents. That's right, you. <laughs> and so I ask you this one question. Have you ever tried simply turning off the TV, sitting down with your children, and hitting them? We're just so busy. Well, make time. It's like because this is always this is always the argument, right? If only we had good individual people who would make the quote unquote right choices, which are not political, because you can't think about it in political in a political sense. No. That, that, then none of these big political problems would exist anymore. I'm sorry, John. Did you mention capitalist realism? I, I I inevitably did, yes. <laughs> Just making beautiful. sure. <laughs> Cross it off the horror vanguard bingo cards. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's what people don't know is my soundboard is just a big bingo card. You you are an artist, a maestro with that thing. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, like uh, kind of like going back to what Jay was saying about Alicia Hall and her character arc throughout the movie. Like, I mean, like it's, it's really misogynistic what they ultimately wind up doing with her. The like, you know, oh, she was widowed and now she's the like, like the, the second her husband died when, when she was 19, she, she transmogrified into a grandmother dotifully watching all of these wayward children in, in the library slash orphanage. And then like, she's just absent throughout the whole middle of the movie. She's doing nothing. And she's just like, Oh, well, I guess, I guess I'm a horrible communist now and I'm going to move out of my house or whatever. And like, it, by the end of the movie, they kind of pivot to this like Martin Nimola kind of first, they came for the communists thing 
no, I should have stood up when I had the chance. It would have been better then. But like the whole middle of the movie doesn't support that ending. Like the grandstanding by the end of this movie is just, it's just standing on like almost nothing. Yeah, it is really flimsy at the end, I would say. It's kind of jumped in with this at the beginning, but it really is sort of the thesis question of this podcast, which is like, what resistance can liberalism put towards a reactionary, towards reactionary and fascist tendencies? And is that resistance sufficient? And we've had a long time to think about it, where it's very much like, what are our answers, right? Like John said, it, you're not throwing away the liberalism, you're making it live up to its promise. Mm-hmm. You know, that took a while for me to kind of suss out in my head. It's like, okay, what do you do with like these liberal ideas that are pretty good? Um, and then how do you sort of make them the the outcome that they should be? I think a really good example of this, I, 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 I've, I've just been writing about this actually, is, is in the context of the Haitian Revolution. Um, so mm-hmm. the Haitian Revolution is, uh, the successful revolution is generations in the making, obviously, uh, when France is in control of, of the island. And it is Toussaint Louverture who leads the successful Haitian Revolution. And Louverture and Dessalines and so many of the other Haitian revolutionary leaders explicitly take, in terms of their rhetoric and explanations of why they're doing what they're doing, they take elements from the French bourgeois revolution, right? Liberty, equality, and brotherhood. And they go, well, if you take that seriously, that means universal emancipation. And in order to enforce and complete those values, that necessarily requires revolutionary struggle. So I think really that's that's the that's that's w- w- what we mean when we talk about the kind of completion or proper universalizing of those ideals. Like the problem was the problem is not that the ideal was bad. The problem was that French racism and French colonialism was actually an impediment to the implementation of that ideal. So yeah. I mean, Louverture and, and like that, that what that ultimately leads you to is the necessity of what Mark Stephen writes about in, the, in their new book, which is the literary history of class war, right? The the idea that actually the antagonism that emerges in the struggle over what those values mean and how they should be implemented is kind of necessarily a revolutionary one. Yeah, there's a, there's a series of lectures I always bring up, which is uh, Rick Roderick, and you can find them all on YouTube. And one of the lectures has a bit that I always think of. He says, the real threat to a system is that people are actually going to hold you to what you say you believe. This is as much a threat to the Soviet system as it is to the liberal system, that people are really going to take you seriously and try and live up to those values. And that's always going to to destabilize, but also give potential for a, a new revolutionary movement. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's worth it to situate the kind of like the specific clade of liberalism we're dealing with in Storm Center too, because this is this is right off the heels of World War II. This is a great time to be an American living in the United States. Uh, everybody's got money. There's a good economic boom, and that's about to slowly start giving way. We're about to hit the '60s and the civil rights movement, and then we're going to get introduced to really cool, fun ideas like Reaganomics. And so we're like, th- this movie is kind of like uncomfortably, si- very uncomfortably seated between like the, the the kind of peaking, this cresting moment where like you know, like the American self mythologizing worked for a, a lot of people not uh, also didn't work extremely for a vast vast majority of them but then it's going to just go into free fall after that and so this movie is kind of like we're, we're seeing like these are like the the teasing threads at the end of american liberalism starting to get pulled apart by its inability to talk about its own political conditions yeah because it's like it's not that hollywood movies before this time like didn't ever have politics or even good politics like even like fairly made like casablanca is like kind of an anti-fascist film in a lot of ways they shoot a nazi in it like and like you know they they are it is the first hollywood film to mention the existence of concentration camps like while the war was still happening they didn't even know if you know who would win the war at the time most of those actors were like refugees um they were like jewish and eastern european like refugees right like hollywood was making films that had like semi-decent politics like during world war ii so like it's not that that was an unheard of thing to ever happen but i guess we won the war so we don't have to do that anymore we don't have to have politics after the war let's go back to shooting nazis in movies though like whatever happened to that you know where's my movie where a librarian shoots nazis I, I volunteer, you know. It's, it's all great. <laughs> Wait, are there Nazis in the Mummy? I haven't seen the Mummies since I was like seven. 
No, it's she's pre-Nazi. I think it's a. Uh... It's pretty Nazi. Okay. Oh, I thought you meant the mummy starring Brendan Fraser. That's where my mind. That's went. that's what I meant. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm like, does she? Because she's a librarian. Does she shoot mm-hmm. a Nazi or anything in that movie? I don't think they have Nazis in that one. Alas, I haven't seen since I was like seven. That's why I'm not bisexual. Is I don't remember the mummy. <laughs> I feel very called out at this moment. <laughs> Came out here to have a good time. <laughs> can i can i can i share just a very brief i i was in doing some research about this film can i just share a very brief excerpt from um a review of this film that i found on letterbox is that, is, is oh, that great please is, is that okay letterbox review absolutely three and a half stars this film features a scene in which betty davis continuously bitch slaps a kid after he hysterically accuses her of being a communist wow what a moment in time <laughs> <laughs> and and the the final one that I the final thing that I I found was um just a, a quite a long review four and a half stars uh, w- uh watched by Rosalie back a couple of years ago if anyone ever tries to remove a book again they will have to do it over my dead body so much greatness in this one note to self I am well on my way to becoming a communist <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> So uh, maybe, maybe you know, we've been a little, maybe we've been a little, a little uh, uncharitable. If, if even now, if even you know, decades and decades after its release, for all of its didactic heavy-handedness, you can watch it and still, still feel kind of moved by it. This was a film not made for librarians. Yeah, because I, I just got so caught up in the like this bullshit liberal intellectual freedom without actual ideology bullshit. Oh, of course they're going to bring up Mein Kampf on the shelves. Are there any other bad books that we can think of? No, I guess not. Just Mein Kampf. That's always the one we have to fucking defend, right? And so like I just got so caught up in, in that like while watching this. Because it's like still the same bullshit arguments we have today. Yeah. The thing I think that struck me the most was I was kind of eyebrows up the whole movie because of the heavy handedness. And then the thing that really got me was that, that final line, the over my dead body. And my only thought was just bitch. They already do Mm -hmm. like as bodies, as just like workers, as commodities Mm -hmm. is not something we've solved where, I mean, we see it, all of the time with throughout the pandemic, uh, there's been a rash of bomb threats against libraries in the Chicago area. So like that statement was supposed to be so powerful at the end of the movie. And to me, it just felt like resignation as a public worker. Yeah, it's going to be over my dead body because that's how far they'll go for it. It didn't leave me with the hope that it was trying to <laughs> convey, which is why I say it's not a movie made for librarians. It's a ma- it's a movie made for people to look at their libraries and feel that way. It's not made for the people who are already doing it over their dead bodies in some very literal senses. Mm-hmm. This is the movie version of every author who gets asked to keynote at a library conference, and the only thing they can talk about is their public librarian when they were a kid that showed them that reading was magical. Oh my god, yeah. And that we all author, if you are this author and you are listening, we hate you. <laughs> please, please come up with a new line. Just please, we've heard it. My librarian, like I never had magical librarians, like that's not, yeah, anyway. <laughs> I think yeah. it was um, at ACRL 2019, we had a, a speech from Allison Bechdel, and that was probably one of the best ones I've heard from Not a Librarian, because they were talking about, they, they made some some offhand comment about gender, and they're like, I thought we were like getting rid of that part of, of our discourse, but whatever, you know, <laughs> it was just sort of a snide remark of uh, um, how... There, there was more of a gender radicalism that's sort of being pushed back, even in liberal discourse, um, by re- repeatedly classifying people and reifying them into all these new um, gender categories, and preference categories. And the point they were making was like, no, we don't need to do that. That categorization is unnecessary. Metadata librarians, I hope you just heard that. <laughs> <laughs> I have a note that just says age before no fault divorce. Um, 
<laughs> well, and and on that note, the the young librarian Martha, when she's like, when he's like, oh, well, why won't you marry me yet? And she's like, well, I already did my- that. Like, how bad was that that she actually apparently got a divorce from it? So like, mm-hmm. and then you're going for the politician. Bad choices. Yeah, going going for um, oh gosh, like like a like a Matt Gates looking motherfucker. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> oh, that is that is the most brutal diss I've heard in a minute. I can just see him at his desk going, "Bring a bucket and a mop." <laughs> <laughs> oh. 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 Ash, are there cicadas where you are, or is that on Justin's audio? Oh, those those are those are my cicadas. I'm training them currently. Oh, good. To, to, to distribute copies of the communist dream to libraries across the country. You should teach them some arias. <laughs> yeah, send me send me good recommendations for arias that cicadas can yeah. learn quickly. I was like, no, this sounds like that that bit in the Empty Man where there's all the cicadas and then they all drop out all at once. <laughs> <laughs> The empty man would have never asked a librarian to take the Communist Manifesto off the shelves. I mean, he wouldn't have. That's why I vote empty man every time. I know it's controversial, but I'm going to keep doing it. Listen, he and Lee Edelman would get along so well (laughs) with their fucking like queer negativity and death drive bullshit. Like, no, we're going towards nihilism. Like, reject, reject this reproductive futurism, baby. It's going to be a bloodbath. I, I am pro empty man now. He's actually a hero. He's in, a comrade. In so many important ways. The empty man has filled our hearts. <laughs> oh, stop it. <laughs> oh, God. So, again, like, the, the liberal intellectual freedom thing is pretty hollow, and it's still kind of a hollow thing. And, like, we've talked about, like, you need to have, like, purpose and intention and ideology, especially with um, when you are having any sort of intellectual freedom discussion, but also, like, practically, if you are a librarian and you have to write a collection development policy and, like, with statements about, like, book bannings and book challenges and stuff, like, oh, well, we keep mine comp even though we don't like it. Like, that's not that's not something you can put in a collection development policy, right? Like, these, like, are vague notions of intellectual freedom. Like, they don't hold up on paper when you have some angry, like, astroturfing mom who is sending a template email to every library in the country about a book about a gay kid, right? Like, but we've got Mein Kampf, like that doesn't that doesn't fucking hold up. So it's like, what do you do? What do you put in your collection development that both is in line with the American Library Association's like stance on intellectual freedom and everything, but also does have ideology that does have intention and purpose that won't get you fired, hopefully, right? Like, like, how do you say, no, we're not going to let Nazis use our meeting rooms. But also, we do think intellectual freedom is important. You know, that's, I feel like this film is a good, this film is like a warning of like librarians. If you don't fucking have ideology behind your intellectual freedom, this is the shit that happens, right? Like this, this, it's not, it doesn't help you. You need to actually be proactive and intentional. Um, and you just, you can't let Nazis use your shit, right? Yeah, because if you go, oh, well, we've got Mein Kampf, even though we don't like it, you're going to get a readership that you don't want to have in your building. Like, yeah, yeah. You, you're, it's a Nazi bar now, right? Yeah, you yeah exactly. If you, if you have Mein Kampf, and, mein Kampf and you're like, oh, I don't like having these Nazi books, but we do, you're going to attract people who like having Nazi books. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's like, also just logistics too. Like when you're talking about collection development, you can't buy every book. Like no one can. So when it goes to a system, it's like, okay, one copy in the system of nine libraries might have Mein Kampf because someone might need it to do research or like a high school history project. And we'll move that book to you. We'll, that's the magic of interlibrary loan. But we don't need to have like, if you donate your, you know, your little self-published if it's self-published it it might have a good chance of getting on the uh, uh, collected but if you're like your favorite conservative right-wing grifter and you bring like five copies to the library we're just going to throw them in like the donation bin and like ignore it because like we've got to catalog them Uh, it takes up shelf space shelf space has a cost per year it's not free to keep things on a shelf because you have to shift shelves that's a labor cost. Like things don't just stay static on a shelf. So there's tons of like um, of reasons to have like a, a complex understanding of collection development, which is why it's really funny that this movie ends. And she's like, I'm never getting rid of a book ever again, which is like <laughs> weeding. It's a big part of our jobs. Is we throw books, books away a lot, actually. Yeah, I love it. We love doing it. Yeah, we we just stand in the back of the library where you can't see us and go buckets. 
Kobe. <laughs> fuck books. Yeah. Fuck you know? I mean, that, that's what you would think we do because all of the dumpsters full of books articles that come out every year when some those concerned are citizens. Fun. Yeah. Those have God. Yes, we do the throw book books has away mold on it. You don't. It's going to kill you. Like, <laughs> Don't take it out of the dumpster. Don't. You don't need a baseball encyclopedia from 1992. <laughs> no, not really. We can recycle them, guys. It's fine. Recycling paper is almost <laughs> infinite. Like, so, and like, that's really the thing about book bans and book challenges. And like, especially with the way that this film ends with like a giant, scary, spooky fire mm-hmm. that we see all of the physical books being burned as if the ideas contained within them is what is actually being harmed when it's like, for all of the critiques of Fahrenheit 451, if it got a thing right, it was that the idea is the important thing isn't the fact that it's paper and a physical item. There is a lot of meaning and added value with something being a physical item in a book. But like, if I like, I don't know, I've got lots of books right up there. And if I just grabbed one, if I like ripped it in half right now, nothing bad would happen besides <laughs> I would need to buy it again. Right? Like, you know, burn even a library burning down, like there might be rare volumes in there. It would cost a lot to replace them, but like you're not harming those ideas by a library burning down, even though it might hurt, even though there is value in having physical items for things. This is not me saying fuck books, we should all have ebooks, and that's not what I'm saying. But just just burning a book, just like removing a book from a library that the, the communist dream isn't in a book the communist dream is in <laughs> your listeners <laughs> and that's really what you should take away from this movie <laughs> it isn't what Beautiful. we read it really is the friends we made along the way <laughs> yes i'm surprised we haven't really brought up moms for libraries or moms for liberty moms for libraries is just a front for moms for liberty we did a whole episode on them uh, i'll link it in the notes um, but it's basically an astroturfing group by the Republican Party, particularly the pro-Santis wing of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And they are astroturfing uh, challenges to queer books and books about race, pretty much of, of any type. And they're quite prolific across the country, particularly because they're they're clearly getting funding from dark money sources that they aren't accounting for. We did the math on it when we we did an episode on them, and they say they make their money from T-shirt sales. Anyone listening who's ever sold t-shirts knows that that's not possible because you don't make any money off t-shirt sales. You just do it to get a cool t-shirt your friends will wear. That's the main reason. And so their approach to having books in the library is very much like they have to have a control over children, which I think is like one of the themes in this is like the librarian is, is getting the kid's head full of ideas He's learning about librarian is the death drive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also there's a part of them that is particularly just like anti-library. They're they're like, they're much happier to have a library closed than to reach a compromise. So they'll fire a director. They'll close down their local branch. That's it's totally, this is a completely anti-library book. They're not for libraries. They are for the destruction of a public space that libraries represent. Like there's really no other way about it because it's much in the same way that homeschoolers run for public school board. They don't believe in public school. Like you get these like fundamentalist homeschoolers and they're like, the only thing I want to do is funnel money to charter schools and cut funding. And that's all I want to do, right? I'm trying to tie that back into sort of the McCarthyism of this movie because I think the anti-communist angle is is always still there. It's always kind of the same panics. It's always a lavender panic. It's always... a a racial panic. And the communism, I always feel, is sort of like secondary to that. The real threat is always like black communists or Mm. women or something else. It's it's that's always kind of a bit more of a smokescreen, but they just choose whatever is is, you know, there's there's some true believers, but not all of them. Yeah, communism is the floating signifier, right? You can just place it onto the onto the outgroup where it's 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 like it's the queers, it's it's those feminists, it's those civil rights acts, like that, or, and if they are not willingly complicit, then they're, 
they're a communist front that, you know, they're trying to impose that uh, all of these things. Right. But it's like, and again, a lot of it from what you say about mums for libraries sounds very much like this idea of like, the idea is not an abstraction. It's the kind of concrete object, which is the problem, right? There, this idea of like, oh, it's the book that's the problem. It's the library that's the problem. It's that actual physical concrete thing that we can erase is the problem. When in fact, actually, as this film quite convincingly shows, the ideas are powerful precisely because of their immateriality and the ability that we all have to instrumentalize and enact ideas and to make ideas kind of real. There is no, there is no, there is no building that if you were to burn it down, people would not believe in the abolition of capitalism anymore, right? Unless you put all those people in that building. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's, that's always where it ends up, isn't it? Yep. I mean, this, like, this literally just happened to um, Emily Dravinsky, who um, we, we mentioned this in an episode, but she, um, she's she been on the show before. She is an amazing librarian in, in New York, and she's very vocal about being a Marxist and a socialist and about um, labor organizing for librarians. And she is our current president of the American Library Association. And when she first got elected um, at the beginning of the year, uh, or like last year, whenever she made, she made a tweet being like, she, that she couldn't believe that like a Marxist lesbian was now the president of the American Library Association and fucking right wing chugs found it. And now all of these various state libraries are like attacking her and leaving the American Library Association, all of that because she's a Marxist and because she's a lesbian. And those are the same thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like th- there didn't have to be a distinction between like if she could have just tweeted that she was a Marxist, she could have just tweeted that she was a lesbian. It doesn't matter. Those are the same thing. Like the red scare was also the lavender scare. Those were not two separate things. Being queer and being communist are the same thing. I mean, obviously those are two me going and like doing a sodomy is not communism, but it could be. It should should be, right? Um, But like, you know, those are the same kind of threat to the idea of America, right? Of the right wing, of capitalism, of all of these things, like being a communist and being queer, being any kind of other, that is an inherent threat. And it's good to be a threat, we think. Like we defend the, like when different library associations were like writing about what happened with Emily, they were like, oh, well, it's actually good to be a member of the American Library Association for XYZ reasons that it never won defended her being a Marxist or being a lesbian. It just was like, she's cool. Anyway, you should join it. Your library should be an ALA member. And we were like, no, it's actually really cool that she's a Marxist. It's actually really cool that she's a lesbian. Like, those are both good things to be. Mm-hmm. So. I just always think of that tweet that was like, can you even be a Marxist lesbian? <laughs> are they going to kick you out of Marxist church for being a lesbian? Can you get gay, gay Marxist married? I thought that was against their religion. Wait, wait, this isn't what ML stands for? <laughs> Have I been misled this whole time? I, I thought MLM was Marxist lesbian mommy. I, I thought that's what the whole thing was. <laughs> oh, man. I, oh. Well, joke's on me. I feel like such a fool. <laughs> you broke, Jay. <laughs> oh, God. When let's Shannon go, lesbians! Let's go! This, when Shannon listens to this, Shannon is going to lose her mind. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, everyone, go support your local public library. Go support your local public librarians. Go request that your library buys books about communism. Go run for your library board. Uh, Go do that, yes. Many of them are appointment. So you just fill out a form and you send it in and then hopefully one day they'll call you. That's how it works for the last two cities I've lived in. Even if you're not on the board, go show up to the meetings because you can, because they're open to the public as it being a public library. Um, Often they'll be like, here's the Zoom link or whatever. Go be annoying. If there's one place on this earth that you can be annoying, it is at your library's board meetings. (laughs) And you should. Uh, Any final thoughts? Thanks for having us on this show to discuss a spooky movie and not a book. I, I mean, uh, the, the, once again, I feel I feel haunted uh, by the vanishing of an of an MLM movement in this country, and um, <laughs> maybe maybe the public libraries are where we should start bringing it back. But yeah, thank you so yeah. much for having us on. Also, Ash, we we never do episodes about books. That would be <laughs> fuck books. Little yeah. on the nose. We're definitely not having a very cool episode about a book coming up in October. Not at That's all. That's true. But <laughs> but that was That's a special book. <laughs> hey, libraries have movies. Libraries have DVDs. That's right. That's, that's true. All right. Well then Fuck them kids. <laughs> <laughs>
is also my is also what you should take away from this. Fuck them <laughs> kids. And good night. Good night.